Welcome to Bite Sized, a cybersecurity Q&A presented to you by Coral Mooring. Our goal is to take the complex world of government contract cybersecurity and break it down into bite-sized pieces. Every other week, we'll take one question that we frequently hear from our clients and give you a short, simple answer and explain why it matters. I'm Kate Growley, and I'm joined today by my partner, Caroline Brown. Caroline is in our international trade and white collar and regulatory enforcement groups. She joined Kroll last year following a decade of national security experience in the federal government. While she was at DOJ's National Security Division, she worked on a variety of counter espionage, cybersecurity, and counterterrorism matters. And then she later moved over to Treasury, where she focused on sanctions and anti-money laundering, which is going to be most of our focus here today. Um, so thank you so much, Caroline, for joining us. Thank you. The- Happy to be here. <laughs> And the timing, Caroline, of your joining us is really no coincidence. So last week, Caroline joined Evan and a few of our colleagues for a webinar that was all about ransomware, something that we touched on in our last episode with Matt Welling. Uh, And as has happened to me before, Caroline, you got bit by the tech bug and uh, the audio cut out on you. So uh, Caroline, it meant that you didn't get the opportunity to share the ton of really great information that you had about the sanctions implications of ransomware. So we thought, let's give it another go. We'll try the podcast throughout this time, cross our fingers that the technology cooperates today. Um, And just a heads up to everyone, this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode than usual, but I promise you it's going to be worth every minute. So thank you so much for joining us today. And Caroline, again, really appreciate you coming on board and educating us all about sanctions and ransomware. Well, Kate, I appreciate the opportunity. And despite my offer of making a payment in order to get my audio back, that didn't quite work out. So appreciate the take two here. No worries, of course. Happy to have you. So um, let's start it out with an overviewing question. There are a lot of competing considerations for companies to think through immediately following a ransomware attack, and it's all usually on a very tight time frame. So what are some of the sanctions and anti-money laundering considerations that companies should be thinking about in the context of that ransomware demand for payment? Well, first, it it should come as no surprise that paying a criminal comes with some additional regulatory and legal risks, of course. Um, And one of the risks that should certainly be top of mind and worked into any incident response or compliance plan dealing with ransomware is the risk of transacting with a counterparty that's either subject to sanctions um, or for those entities covered by the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, including money services businesses, what we term MSBs, that includes cryptocurrency exchanges, you know, failure to file required suspicious activity reports, and also making a payment to a terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. And so last October, the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, um, as well as the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, they issued ransomware advisories. What's the key takeaway from those notices? Well, OFAC made clear in its notice that unless it grants a specific license, and OFAC suggested that it's not inclined to do so in the context of ransomware attacks, A person who makes ransom payments to sanctioned parties or jurisdictions can face penalties for violating OFAC sanctions regulations. 
And it's also important to note that in addition to these treasury notices, you know, where the attacker is known to be an FTO, that's a foreign terrorist organization, payments could constitute a violation of 18 USC section 2339B, which is the material support provision. And that provision holds that whoever knowingly provides material support or resources to a foreign terrorist organization or attempts or conspires to do so can face penalties, you know, in, including both imprisonment um, and fines. But, but the key term here for the material support statute is that the violator must have knowledge that the entity is an FTO. So it, it'd be prudent overall for, for victims of ransomware attacks to also consider the risk of violating the material support provisions given the emphasis on compliance as set forth in, in the Treasury advisories, although it's, it's unclear at this point whether DOJ would actually enforce this in the context of ransomware payments. And what if a company conducts all the diligence that it can to ensure that it's not paying a sanctioned entity, but ends up making a payment to what turns out to be a sanctioned entity nonetheless? Well, penalties are imposed on a strict liability basis. And that means that making a mistake is no excuse in OFAC's book. And knowing violations can lead to criminal liability. You know, of course, this is this makes you know the decision about whether or not to pay a, a ransomware payment very difficult, and that you know the attribution and, and figuring out who's making the demand can be particularly difficult. Um, and this is made all the more complicated for ransom payments made in cryptocurrency. You know, cyber criminals, of course, you know, they conceal their, their identities and a ransomware victim is usually provided with little more than an email address and a cryptocurrency wallet. And that tends to be of little use when checking against OFAC sanctions lists. And other than its ransomware advisory, how has OFAC used its authorities to address ransomware? OFAC has several authorities that allow it to sanction ransomware attackers and other known cyber criminal organizations. You know, back in 2015, we saw the issuance of the Cyber Sanctions Executive Order, that's Executive Order 13694, which was later amended. And that executive order allows OFAC to add individuals and entities to the SDN list. And the SDN list stands for the Specially Designated Nationals List who are you know, determined to engage in malicious cyber activities. OFAC has since used those authorities to designate a number of established cybercrime organizations, including the developer of CryptoLocker and Evil Corp. There's also a number of sanctions programs that apply to governments of what the United States determines to be adversarial countries, um, as well as entities and organizations owned or controlled by those governments. Executive Order 13772, for example, blocks all property and interest and in property of the government of North Korea, which makes cybercrime groups under the control of the North Korean government subject to sanctions. And we saw OFAC exercise its authority when it designated Lazarus Group and two other North Korean groups who used WannaCry 2.0 to infect approximately 300,000 computers in May 2017. And then in addition to the SDN list, U.S. persons are prohibited from engaging in transactions with or involving citizens and residents of embargoed territories. And those territories include the Crimea region of Ukraine, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Syria. And finally, it's 
Also worth pointing out that OFAC has begun adding digital currency addresses associated with sanctioned persons as part of its set of identifiers on the SDN list. What that means is that companies may have obligations to block digital currency payments associated with those digital addresses. And that makes compliance inherently more complicated. Mm. And is it only the companies that are the target of ransomware demands that should be thinking about these sanctions risks? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And that's what really stuck out to a lot of people at the time of the issuance of these advisories. You know, OFAC's advisory emphasizes that the risks related, you know, are, are related not only to direct payments of ransoms, but also facilitating such payments. And by that, OFAC means ransomware insurance businesses, payment processors, and companies involved in digital forensics and incident response. And from a sanctions perspective, facilitation is very broadly defined. Prohibitions on engaging with a sanctioned party or jurisdiction extends to actions and activities that would facilitate a transaction by a non-U.S. person that would be prohibited if done by a U.S. person. And similarly, non-U.S. persons should also pay attention to these prohibitions. If a U.S. person or U.S. dollars are involved in a transaction, non-U.S. persons could face scrutiny for causing the U.S. person to violate sanctions. And this risk typically arises when converting U.S. dollars or using a U.S.-based bank account or cryptocurrency exchange to make a ransom payment to a sanctioned party. And there's another risk that's worth highlighting. The Fenton Advisory also provided an effective warning to entities such as digital forensics and incident response companies, as well as cyber insurance companies, stating that Fenton might treat them as money transmitters um, if they arrange or, or make ransomware-related payments on behalf of clients. And money transmitters are a form of an MSB, and money services business, that's subject to regulation under the Bank Secrecy Act. Yeah, that's definitely worth noting for lots of folks in that, that part of the ransomware response lifecycle. Is there anything companies can do then when forced between making a payment and possibly violating these sanctions? Well, there is some good news here and that OFAC maintains broad discretion to determine whether it's going to penalize an organization making ransomware payments. And it signaled that there's a few steps that an organization can take to reduce the chances that OFAC will indeed pursue an enforcement action. You know, first, OFAC encourages companies to maintain a risk-based compliance program to mitigate exposure to any sort of sanctions-related violations. And its ransomware advisory referenced previous guidance that OFAC will consider the existence, nature, and adequacy of a sanctions compliance program when determining whether or not it's going to initiate an enforcement action. OFAC also encourages companies that engage with victims of ransomware attacks. And again, this is a reference to cyber insurance companies, digital forensics companies, and MSBs to also maintain risk-based sanctions compliance programs that specifically account for the risk that a ransomware payment may involve an SDN or block person or an embargoed jurisdiction. And then finally, OFAC will consider 
a self-initiated, timely, and complete report of a ransomware attack to law enforcement, as well as full and timely co cooperation with law enforcement, both during and after a ransomware attack, to be mitigating factors and determining whether or not it's going to both initiate an enforcement action and what the outcome of that enforcement action might be. The takeaways here are that having a sanctions compliance plan related to ransomware, conducting a full look back following the payment of a ransomware demand, and working with law enforcement will likely all help mitigate any sanctions-related penalties. And the same is true for financial institutions, incident response companies, cyber insurance companies, you know, anyone in that payment chain that might find themselves in the position of facilitating ransomware payments or other related dealings. So switching gears a little bit, what are the AML-related concerns with ransomware payments? Yeah, there's, there has been a lot of focus on the OFAC advisory, but the FinCEN advisory is also very instructive. The notice describes in detail typologies related to ransomware payments. And as part of that, it explains that perpetrators of ransomware can receive the payment. And again, these are usually made in cryptocurrency and then launder that cryptocurrency using a variety of methods. And that includes mixers and tumblers. Those are mechanisms that obscure the link between the sender and receiver, converting the virtual currency into different vir virtual currencies, smurfing, which means breaking the funds into smaller amounts that then move separately, and using many different accounts, exchanges, and peer-to-peer -peer exchanges located in different jurisdictions. And so FinCEN, you know, having highlighted these risks, it also underscores the potential for financial institutions to be used in the processing of these payments. And again, that includes intermediaries that facilitate such payments. These, these are oftentimes not banks, but again, these different companies that are in that payment chain. Um, and FinCEN stresses the importance of detecting and reporting the details related to these attacks in the required suspicious activity reporting or, or SARS. You know, FinCEN also recently emphasized this point again by highlighting ransomware as a particularly acute cybercrime concern and the issuance of the first priorities for AML and countering the financing of terrorism policy a couple of months ago. So to wrap it up, let's end with enforcement. Has OFAC ever issued a penalty for making a ransomware payment? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question right now. You know, al although no public civil penalty has been announced by OFAC in connection with making ransomware payments, it's certainly expected that OFAC will exact one in the near term. You know, traditionally sanctions penalties are used as deterrence and to change behavior. As part of what we've seen as a reinvigorated whole of government approach to stem this increasing trend in ransomware demands, enforcing sanctions might cause companies to think twice about making a payment. And if the bad actors don't get paid, they might just stop making demands. Caroline, thank you so much. So that was a huge amount of information. Um, we will be linking to the ransomware webinar from last week, um, where I know you got to get in some of this, but we've got the full slate that you've just walked through here. Um, so again, really appreciate you coming on and joining us. Well, thanks very much, Kate. 
And thank you all for joining Bite Size Q&A. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks with a new question and a simple explanation. But in the meantime, you can find more information on our website. And if you have any suggestions for what questions we should cover, please do let us know. Caroline can be reached at 202-624-2509, and I'm at 2698. Thanks so much. This has been Bite Size Q&A, a podcast brought to you by Curl and Mooring. You can find more information at curl.com slash cyberpodcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review.